we are preparing for Easter this year by looking at some of the times that Jesus talked with his disciples and with his followers and with other people who just happened to be around about his impending death. So Jesus actually brought up the subject of his death really a a whole bunch of times. And, And the frequency with which he alluded to his death or he just spoke outright about it, like, hey, I'm going, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm gonna die, helps us understand that Jesus' death was not an act of incompetence. Like, it wasn't that he did something wrong, he didn't know what he was doing, and he ended up dead. But his death really was an act of obedience. He was following the plan of, of God. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. It was intentional. And if Jesus' death was intentional, then there, there must have been great purpose behind it. And so um, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had the end clearly in view. And so today, we're gonna look at the first time that Jesus mentions his death. And you'll see in the conversation that he's having that the people who heard it didn't really know what he was talking about. They they completely get it wrong. It's kind of an odd story, but when we look at it, we kind of zoom out a little bit and we look at the bigger picture, I think it's all gonna begin to make sense. So we're gonna jump into John chapter two this morning. Uh, Last week, we're in the middle of Mark, Mark 8, where Jesus asked this question, "Who who do you say that I am? And you have Peter saying, you're the Messiah, you're the King, you're the one who's to come. And and so it's this kind of this big moment, and then it's very short, just a few weeks from Mark 8 to Mark 16, where Jesus is is dead. Uh, Now we're going to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2, and so hopefully it uh, works out. Here's what it says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was and where they celebrated the Passover. Now in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers, and they were sitting there. And everybody's like, okay, with the story uh, to this point. And then all of a sudden, Jesus makes a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. And now we're like, okay, there must've been something wrong with all these people being in the temple. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out all the coins of the money changers. He's overturned their table. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, which is what you say about pigeons, really. Uh, And do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples, and this is kind of an editorial part, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's the Old Testament kind of prophecy. So the Jews said to him, uh, he's done all this thing, he's drove them all out of the temple, and the people are there, it's like, um, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Again, editorial here, verse 21. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, 
at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, when we talk about Jesus' life, it seems obvious that his ministry started or began or kicked off when he was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin, John. By the way, we're doing baptisms here next Sunday. So I think we've got four or five people scheduled for that. We're going to do it at the end of the service. Uh, if you're ready to take that step, you can go to reallifecc.us uh, forward slash baptism. And uh, there's information there and you can register to do that, but excited for that next week. So Jesus' baptism in the Jordan by his cousin John is kind of where his ministry began. It's like the official start, the inauguration of the beginning of his three and a half year ministry. Now, John the baptizer, not the John who wrote this, okay? This is, the God, this is uh, John the disciple. John the baptizer, who is Jesus' cousin, he was Elizabeth and Zachariah's son. So Jesus' mother Mary was cousin to Elizabeth. And if you want to know what that makes Jesus and John, talk to Andrea, because I get that completely mixed up. I don't know, first cousin once removed. I don't know how it works. Uh, anyway, she keeps track of all of that. They, we'll just say that they were cousins. They were related through their, through their moms. Now, we're told elsewhere in Scripture that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth both came from the priestly line of Aaron. So we're going to get genealogical, technical with you for just a minute. Uh, God calls Moses, remember Moses, uh, while he's out in the wilderness and God speaks to him through the burning bush, he sends Moses back to, to Pharaoh in Egypt and through Moses uh, and the plagues and all that stuff, God frees the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt and they go into the wilderness and they become the nation of God's people. As part of that process, Moses' brother Aaron becomes the first high priest and so he's the guy that is the mediator kind of between God and, and the people. And so God says that um, from Aaron's bloodline through his children will be all of the priests that work in the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament then the temple in the New Testament um, for the rest of time. You had to trace your lineage back to Aaron. Now, many priests, um, only had the, their father who was uh, in the bloodline of Aaron and they could become a priest. We are told, and it's kind of an odd part of the story, but we are told that both his dad, Zechariah, and his mom, Elizabeth, came from the priestly line of Aaron. So John is a priest in the line of Aaron through both his father and his mother. And that's, that's interesting. So he is a pure blood priest. Now, here's why I think that is really cool. Uh, it was only the priests of Aaron in that bloodlines, only those people who could become high priests or the priests that oversaw the sacrifices. And so if uh, you were going into the temple to place a, make a sacrifice because you had sinned um, or whatever the thing was going on, you're going to the temple, you're going to present a sacrifice. It was a lamb, a calf, a, a pigeon, a dove, whatever it was. That sacrifice had to pass through the hands of a priest in the line of Aaron, 
And that priest's role was to determine if the sacrifice was worthy or not worthy. And so God had listed all of these things about uh, specifics about the animal. So if you brought a lamb, it had to be a year old. It had to be, uh, it couldn't have any broken bones. It couldn't have any spots. It, was, it had to be perfect uh, in the way. So just think of, um, think of the judges at the kennel club show that they do when it's Thanksgiving or something, they have that big kennel club. So that's what the priest did. They, they brought the animals to him. The priest looked them over. They said, okay, this animal is acceptable for the sacrifice. Now only a priest of Aaron could make that determination. And so if a priest sacrificed an animal on the altar, if it shed its blood for the sin of the person who brought it, then that priest had deemed that sacrifice worthy. So by the, by the fact that the priest killed the animal, it meant that it was worthy to be sacrificed. Okay, are you with me? That's a lot. Here's what's happening. John is a priest in the line of Aaron on his mother and father's side, but he does not follow that path, right? God, uh, the angel speaks to Elizabeth or speaks to Zechariah and says, John is gonna be the herald that was promised to bring in or to usher in the Messiah. So John does not take the normal path that he would have taken in his father's footsteps to become a priest, probably in the line for high priest because he had Aaron on both sides of his family. Um, And so he would have been a very prominent priest within the temple. John does not take that path. Instead, we're told that he's out in the wilderness and he's eating locusts and wild honey and he wears uh, clothes made of camel hair, which which is not good. Uh, And this is the deal. Okay, so um, he doesn't do that. He follows this other thing of God. Now, if we go to John chapter one, verse 29, we read this. The next day, he, John, is who he's talking about, saw Jesus coming toward him. Now this is at Jesus' baptism. John is down by the Jordan River. He sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Any guesses as to why that's really important? This is a incredibly big moment in Jesus' life and history and the way this works out. See, as priest of Aaron, who judged the sacrifice, whether it was acceptable or not acceptable, whether it was fit to be sacrificed or not, John, the baptizer, just proclaims Jesus as fit for sacrifice. Behold, the lamb of God. What do they do with lambs? They sacrifice them for the sin of the person bringing it. But John goes on to say, and he says, this this lamb of God is not just an acceptable sacrifice for a person, but he will take away the sin of the whole world. The very first thing that's said about Jesus in public is a priest of Aaron recognizes him as an acceptable sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of everybody in the world. It's the first thing that's said about Jesus. I think that is pretty amazing. It's a huge, huge statement. When you notice that for any sacrifice to be accepted, it had to be approved by a descendant of Aaron, which John was. And so God followed his own protocol and a priest 
signed off on Jesus as a fitting sacrifice at the very, very beginning of his ministry. I think that's really cool, but there's more in the text here. Um, John, uh, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem to celebrate the yearly festival of Passover. And so this is the beginning of his ministry. In just a couple years, he's gonna go back to Jerusalem He's gonna enter the city on a donkey and people are gonna lay palm branches and their cloaks down on the road. It's called Palm Sunday. That's what's celebrated next week, the Sunday before Easter. And he's gonna ride into town and everybody's gonna shout and cheer for him. And then in just a few days after that, he's gonna be killed on a Roman cross. And so Jesus begins his ministry in John chapter two in the same place that he's gonna end his ministry at the end of John, at the end of the gospels, where he goes back to Jerusalem and he is killed uh, by these very people that he's gonna meet when he goes to the temple now. So when Jesus entered the temple for the first time, he's discovered um, some unsavory things when he gets there. Uh, he found what appears to be priests and their helpers, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, not just selling sacrifices to weary travelers as they would come to Jerusalem, um, but really uh, fleecing the people or soaking the people for more. And, and so I'm going to try and um, I'm gonna break this down. I've got a bunch of stuff here, but I'm going to break it down quickly as I can. Um, Jewish people were required to go to the temple to worship um, in particular on the Passover, but there are seven feasts that happen in Jerusalem. And um, people, if you lived kind of outside or close to Jerusalem, you would come to all of those feasts and you'd be a part of that and you'd celebrate that. But if you lived farther away, you really were supposed to make pilgrimage at least once a year for the Passover celebration. And so Jerusalem would just be filled with people. The problem for many of these people is that they live such a great distance away that to bring animals with them for sacrifice could be difficult for them. It might be hard to find food. You'd have to make sure that you had enough uh, to get the animal there. Plus you have to feed your family. Plus remember, you're not just hopping in the car with air conditioner and a trailer on the back where you could put your animals for your sin. There was a whole bunch more stuff involved here. And so on some level, having animals at the temple that people could purchase when they got to town is a kindness to those travelers. You don't have to worry about finding an animal where you live and bringing it all the way here with you. We will sell you some, that's, that's nice. Now, if they sold those animals for a decent price and they made sure that the animals they were selling at the temple uh, past inspection to be uh, used as a sacrifice, that would be a good thing. That would be a kind thing to do. Hey, we know that you've come a long way. We know that there's a lot of stuff going on. Here's an animal that you can purchase at a fair price, and it's a good animal. It will pass inspection, and you can offer it as a sacrifice. I do not think that's what was going on. There's a reference to these animals, uh, oxen and sheep and pigeons, in particular pigeons, um, and then money changers that were there set up in the temple. 
Um, money changing happened in almost every city. You think you've got uh, all of these different kind of national things going on. You've got uh, Greek or Hellenistic people. You've got Roman people. They're using uh, Jewish money. They're using Greek money. They're using Roman money. And so when you would go into a big city, you would have to go to the money changers, just like if you traveled internationally here. And you'd go to the money changer and you would exchange your money from wherever to get the money that was used in that city so that you could, um, you could function, you could live, you could buy food and whatever else you needed. That would not be a big deal. Again, a kindness to people who were coming in from out of town, if they were giving it uh, for a fair price, they were exchanging money fairly. Again, I don't think that's what was going on. I think the priests had set up with the Levites in the temple, and I think they had a racket going. I think that they were exchanging money but they were taking a fee for that, an exorbitant fee for that. We're gonna exchange your money, but we're gonna give you an unfair exchange for that money. With the sacrifices, I think that what they were doing, again, because the priests controlled what sacrifices were allowed to be offered, I think, this, I think the priests were selling subpar sacrifices to the people as though they were perfect sacrifices. I think they were cheating the people, and more importantly, I think they were cheating God because they ran the whole show. I'm a priest, and I'm going to sell you this animal that is not perfect, but I'm going to tell you that it's okay because my buddy who's working today in the temple, when you go to take that sacrifice, he's going to proclaim that animal as perfect, and he's going to sacrifice it on your behalf, and you can, you can have the forgiveness of your sin. I guess it's a big thing going on. I think one of the ways that we see this is because Jesus points out the pigeons. He's like, get these stinking pigeons out of here. That doesn't really make any sense in the story unless you realize that a pigeon was only to be offered as a sacrifice if you could not financially afford a dove. The dove was the first choice. And then if you couldn't afford that, if you just were too poor, you could have a pigeon, which apparently were very cheap. But there's no mention of doves in the story. I think that the priests were bringing in these pigeons. I don't think they had any doves. They were bringing in these pigeons. They were selling them for a higher price. There's an inferior product, if you will. And they were getting them uh, to people and they were making sacrifices for it. It's this huge racket. The priests were making lots of money. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, how were the priests supposed to survive? The people would bring offerings and they would leave them in the temple and those offerings would be distributed and the priests would have enough food and enough money to live on uh, during the year so that their service in the temple could be maintained. The priests were not happy with that or maybe people weren't bringing in what they were supposed to and the priests decided these, this great plan. They were gonna write their own story. And so, hey, if we take control of the, uh, uh, of the animal trade here, we take control of the money changing here, we can make more money and we can get the money from the people that they're supposed to give to us anyway. So there's this whole big issue here. And look at verse 16. Jesus makes this remark in verse 16, though, and he, and he says, this is my father's. He calls it my father's house. And it's not supposed to be about trade, he says. In other words, um, the temple was to be a place of ministry and peace and kindness and justice. Those things were supposed to be present from the priests and with the people at the temple, but instead they had turned it into a place of, of commerce, buying and selling injustice and chaos because of the animal trade that was going on within the uh, walls or the compound of the temple. 
So because of what Jesus sees here, he causes this big stir and he makes this whip and he drives people out of the temple. And he says, my father's house is not to be about trade. In fact, in other, uh, in other gospels, it says it's supposed to be a house of prayer. Um, now here's what I notice. Jesus should not have been the one to do this. There should have been a priest who saw this going on and said, this is not right. We've got to stop this. The priests themselves should have stopped this before it ever got started. But because the priests didn't do it, because they were um, governed by, by power and, and, and money and prestige and whatever, they didn't stop it because they wanted more of that stuff. The very people of Israel, of Jerusalem, who lived there, they should have stopped it. They should have gone in and said, we're not going to put up with this anymore. You're cheating God. You're cheating us. Nobody said a word. Everybody just went along with it until Jesus comes. And Jesus comes and he's like, this is not right. And he drives the people out. And then they ask this fairly legitimate question. Um, they're like, hey, um, Jesus, who gives you the authority to do this? You're putting yourself higher than the priests. Like this is, the, how, how can you do this? What authority do you have? Show us a sign so that we know you've got the authority to do what you have just done. And so Jesus gives them a sign, although he gives them a sign that they didn't want uh, and they certainly didn't expect. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Now, obviously any rational person looking at that and hearing Jesus say that would go, he cannot be talking about the temple proper. These huge stones and massive beams that made up the temple. There's no way that, that he, they could build that or rebuild that in, in three days. And it took a very long time to build. But the priests and the Jewish people there, they just didn't, didn't get it. And so I, there's really a, a bigger story here, I think. In Middle Eastern culture, families stick together. It's, it's not like the way, the way we do it. Uh, today in, in our society, it, when, you, when you grow up, um, you decide I wanna go to college somewhere and you might go to college in some far off part of the country. You might travel internationally to go to college. When you're done with that, you, you might live someplace com completely away from, from your parents. My parents live in the greater Northwest, in, in Idaho. We grew up in Oregon, and now I'm clear out here 1,500 miles away um, in Kansas. We can do that because travel is easy and that kind of thing. But in the Middle Eastern culture, that was unheard of. It didn't happen. And, and there's a, a reason why. Um, the patriarch of the family, the father of the, the family, and we're talking about generations, your father's father's father, had a job, a trade, and every male in that family was expected to follow in their father's footsteps. And they all lived either together in a Bedouin society where they, where they traveled, if they were sheepers or whatever, they lived together in tents. Um, and all of the males in the family supported the trade of the father. It, it's, a, it's a word, and I'm, I might butcher it, but I, it's called Badov. And, and when you're a part of a Bedov, you're a part of this larger family, and everybody within that family exists to serve the purpose of the father, of the patriarch. Everybody works to, to do what the father of the patriarch wants to do. It's this very close-knit, um, very important family uh, unit here. Here's why 
uh, it's important. The father's house, the Bedov, is where the rest of the family would go for protection and provision um, when they were in, in need. Um, as a part of your father's house, you found your purpose there. When you left that, you were not just leaving the family, you were leaving your trade, you were leaving everything you knew. It was a big deal. Like people just didn't leave the Badov. They didn't leave their father's house. This was huge. So when Jesus says, this is my father's house, he's saying this house, this temple, these people here, the Jewish people, this is supposed to be a place for all of these people. And instead, you've turned it into a, like a fast cash title loan place. You've turned it into a place that doesn't exist for the benefit and the blessing of the people it's supposed to serve. And what this means is the priests had completely forgotten their role in the Father's house. They had made worship all about the physical instead of instead of the spiritual. The religious leaders had made worship all about the physical, the money, instead of the spiritual, which was the ministry of the temple and what they were supposed to do. Um, and so they'd made it about the temporal instead of the eternal. They had focused or they were focused on the physical act of sacrifice and the money changing hands and stuff, not the spiritual understanding of awareness and the need for this sacrifice to cleanse us of sin and forgiveness. They'd, they'd missed all that. It was all about what can I get? How much can I get? What can I do to get more? Now, um, we've been going on in this story like, like this one direction. I realize we're gonna, we're gonna pump the brakes hard. We're gonna make a left turn. And so I just want you to uh, hold on really quickly. Um, if you go to the beginning of chapter two, so we've been in chapter two, verses 13 to about 25. If you go to the beginning of chapter two, beginning in verse one, you read about how Jesus and his disciples had attended. They had been invited to a wedding in, in Cana, of Galilee. Uh, so the first thing that Jesus goes to is like his first public appearance. In chapter one, um, Jesus was baptized. We get like a little bit of lineage, lineage. John starts really weird. He's like, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he gets baptized. Then Jesus calls some disciples. He calls Nathaniel, uh, Philip and Nathaniel in particularly. And then we move to chapter two where they're invited to this wedding in this town called Cana. Jesus, Jesus had been invited to the wedding and so he went and he had been invited because somehow his family was connected to the family of the, the people who were being married. There's a, there's a familial connection here, maybe through um, Joseph. While they're there at the wedding, the groom's family who was in charge of the wedding, they, they ran out of wine. Now, um, we, we might think today uh, like bummer, um, that's really sad. We'll just go down to the liquor store and we'll get some more and we'll come back and it'll be great. Uh, not the case here. Uh, if you ran out of wine, it was a huge, huge like faux pas. It was really bad. Um, you, you did not want to do that. It was a bad name. It was a, it was a bad situation. Um, so it's like this really big, like they would look down on this. It's not, it's not good. So Jesus mom's come, mom comes to him and she's like, Hey son, um, look, I need you to, 
to help because they're about out of wine. And if they run out, it's going to bring a lot of shame on the family. And I don't want this to happen. So I want you to take care of it. And Jesus, Jesus offers those words. He's like, Hey, look, it's not my time yet. Like you're, you're rushing things. This is not supposed to happen. Um, Jesus takes six uh, jars, clay jars. They're filled with water and they were used for religious purposes. When people would come into the wedding or to the house, they would take this water and they would wash, ritually cleanse themselves so that they were ready then to enter the party, to eat and to do, do other things. So Jesus has these religious use jars, these vessels filled back up with water. And then he miraculously changes that water into um, seasoned or fermented wine. The, the, the head of the party calls it the best wine. It's like, you saved the best for last. This is really good um, wine. And so Jesus turns this family catastrophe into a community celebration. And instead of the family being shamed, they are now, now their status is elevated in the, in the community. They were at this situation where like, there's, no, there's nothing we can do. This is horrible. This is shameful. And instead, at the end of the party, they're like, they're the best family um, ever. So he turns this catastrophe into this really good good thing. And so much honor was given to the family because of this miracle. At the end of the story in um, verse 11, we're told that the disciples who Jesus had just called at the end of chapter one, that they believed in Jesus. Okay, why is this important? What's the purpose of these two stories? Uh, I think the story of Jesus in the temple only really makes sense if you also compare it with the story of Jesus at the wedding. I think they're parallel stories that we're supposed to read together. Um, Jesus was not the son of Joseph, right? He, he was the son of God. He's not the son, son of Joseph. But this wedding was probably a part of Joseph's family. It was probably his relatives, his side of the family. Jesus was the son of God. Okay, so keep those two things separate. I'm only going to go down through some um, similarities or differences. Uh, Jesus is invited to the wedding. Jesus attends or goes to the temple. Okay, so he's invited to one place. He simply shows up at the other place. He's invited to the place of his physical family. He shows up at the place of his spiritual family, the, the temple. Um, Jesus responded to the need at the wedding out of compassion for the people, that, that he has compassion on them because he knows this is gonna bring shame on the family. At the temple, Jesus sees a need and he responds out of correction. It's not compassion, he's like, there's a problem and it needs to be fixed, and so he addresses that. Jesus used religious vessels to meet physical needs in the story of the wedding at Cana. Jesus used a physical vessel, a whip, uh, to uh, meet a spiritual need, this ministry over, over money thing that was going on. Jesus' blood in the Bible is represented by wine, right? At the end of the story, Jesus uh, meets with the disciples in the upper room and he prays and he has the wine and he says, this wine represents my blood which is poured out for you. What do the people at the wedding do with the wine? They drink it. They're participating in the life of Jesus go to the temple and you see that Jesus' blood will be shed by those in attendance at the temple. 
Jesus' disciples, at the end of the Cana uh, wedding story, Jesus' disciples believe in him and he gives more of himself to them. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry and so he invests and he pours himself into his disciples from this point moving forward. But at the end of the temple story, we're also told that the people believe in Jesus, but he does not give more of himself to them because it says he knows what's in their heart. He knew man, and so he didn't give more of himself to them. So here's what I think is so cool about this. In the first two stories of John's gospel, where John is just beginning to tell us about this person, Jesus, like we know very, very little about him. He offers two parallel pictures of Jesus with crowds. One at a wedding where they're serving wine and one at the temple where they're offering sacrifices. One crowd receives a blessing, the wedding, and the other crowd receives a beating. But doesn't it seem like those should be reversed? Doesn't it seem like Jesus at the wedding should be like, you know, if you listen to my parents, it's like, no alcohol, <laughs> bad people. And at the temple, he should be like, hey, you're all here and you love me and everything is great. Like, it doesn't really um, make sense. But un unless you look at it um, th this way, J Jesus is, he's rejected by the people who serve in his spiritual family's house in the temple, the priests, and he is celebrated by the people who serve in his physical family's house of Joseph. It's, it's backwards. And it's backwards because everything Jesus did in his life and ministry was, was backwards. And so the first two stories of John's gospel where we're first introduced to Jesus, they exemplify the highest two ethics of the kingdom. Um, highest two ethics of the kingdom, to love others and to love God. In, in the story of the wedding at Canaan of Galilee, Jesus is showing love for these people who are gonna be shamed because they ran out of wine and instead he elevates their standing within the community. When he gets to the temple, there's already shame going on and so because of his love for God, he brings correction there and he resets things and he restores things. Why did Jesus call the temple his father's house? The temple was the center of worship for the Jews, but it's a whole lot more than that. The first temple was called the tabernacle. It was a movable, a movable thing. They would pack it up and they'd go when they were in the desert and they were following Moses and the pillar of fire and cloud around. It was movable. In the tabernacle and then in the temple, there was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the box, it was called the mercy seat. And there were some angels that were carved into the top and their wings outstretched. And we're told that at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat, God's presence dwelt. So God's presence dwelt at the ark or on the ark in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It's why you had to cleanse yourself and everything before you went into the temple. It's this big deal. We're also told in the tabernacle and the temple, it was decorated with um, palm trees and uh, pineapples and all kinds of tree things and all this stuff. What does that remind you of? The Garden of Eden, where God met with his people. In the tabernacle and the temple, 
God met with his people. His presence was there in both of those things. Now, the, ta- the temple was stationary. Everybody had to go to the temple to get to God. The tabernacle was movable. God's presence went with the people. And whenever um, the pillar of fire and cloud stopped, they would set up the tabernacle, and around the tabernacle would be the priests and the Levites. And then outside of the priests of Levites, there would be three tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel on each side of the temple, They'd be, or the tabernacle. They'd be surrounding the tabernacle with God's presence at the, at the center. You see where we're going here? Um, the problem is, that God's presence had not been present at the temple for a very long time. Since the Jews had been taken captive to Babylon, God's presence left the temple because of the sin that was going on there, and it never returned. The temple had been rebuilt, but God's presence had not been restored until Jesus comes. And so let's look at John 1.14. We're almost done. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one, uh, of the only son from the father. Now, the uh, word dwelt in that verse is actually the word tabernacled. If you look in the Hebrew, it says Jesus uh, came and uh, a word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is drawing a distinct line between Jesus and the tabernacle of the Old Testament that moved with the people. It wasn't stationary. It moved wherever the people went, and it was the presence of God there for the, for the people. Um, God's presence now dwells not in the temple or the tabernacle, but with his son who has made his dwelling among us, which means he goes with us He's with us. We don't have to get to him. He has come to us. And so if you want to get to God, you're not going to a place anymore. You've got to go to a person. Later in John chapter 14, verse 6, um, we'll read this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's two important lessons I think that we learn here. The the first one um, is this. Worship isn't about ritual, it's about relationship. It's not about going to the temple and making the right sacrifice and doing all the right things and going through the motions, but forgetting about the ministry of of, of God and Jesus and that that we're getting forgiveness of sin. And there's, there's a call to live a life that looks more like Jesus. It's not about ritual, it's about um, relationship. Uh, But um, there's another part to this. Uh, Worship isn't about going through the motions, but about experiencing the moments where Jesus is present with us. The the guys in the temple, the priests, they, they missed this. They missed it. They thought if we just do the sacrifices correctly, then God is happy with us and everything is okay. And they continued to worship in a temple where God's presence had not visited for hundreds of years because they'd blown. And Jesus comes and John says, look, you need to understand that Jesus is the sacrifice, not just a sacrifice for one person's sins, but for everybody's 
sins. Jesus isn't in this place where you have to try and get to him. He's come and made his home with you so that he dwells with you. And if you want to get to him, you don't have to go anywhere because he's right there. Sometimes I think we come to church and we think, man, if I just go to church, if I just give a little, if I just serve a little, then I'm okay and everything's okay and it's good. And, and I think that the lesson we find in, in, in the story of the wedding at Cana and the temple is, is, that, is that just coming to church or just going through the motions isn't enough. We have to live our lives. We have to do our best to look more like Jesus um, every day. We have to take advantage of those moments where we see God working and then get involved with him um, in, in that way. Um, don't get busy in the temple or don't get so busy in the temple that you forget about experiencing Jesus in the interactions that you have every day with ordinary people. Because Jesus wasn't found in the, in the temple. <laughs> he, he was found in this wedding, hanging out with people. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't welcome in this place where he was supposed to be, <laughs> but he was welcomed and celebrated in this place that he was invited. Um, and, and so we, we wanna invite you into that relationship and hope that you can experience that real life that only comes through Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for dwelling among us, for coming to us in Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for meeting us where we're at, even at this party and stepping into our chaos and, and delivering us from these places of shame and moving us into these places of honor. It's all because of you. Help us to look more like the, the folks at that wedding than the folks at the temple. Help us not to get so caught up in the temple stuff that, that we miss the fact that you tabernacled among us. You live among us. Thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.